And now, coming at you from the Five Star Physique Studio in Knoxville, Tennessee, this is The Drop Set with your host, Darren Starr. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode, I'm going to call it maybe number 129, something like that. I think that sounds about right of The Drop Set. I'm your host, Darren Starr. Thank you. If you have uh, heard this before, thank you for coming back. I appreciate it. If this is your first time here, hey, I'm glad you found me. It is uh, difficult to be found in uh, in this day and age of everybody and their uncle running a podcast, uh, and that is pretty much the state of affairs currently. Everybody's got one. I got my um, weekly update um, from Chartable, uh, the the organization that tracks my uh, my podcast analytics for me, and that, this is just a free service. They send it to me because they want me to pay for some more expensive service that gives me more statistics or something like that. I don't know. So what it says is that uh, under Apple Podcasts in the U.S. of A. under the category of fitness and nutrition, I am at position number six hundred and forty two. And they ranked the top thousand, and I've said this before. I didn't even know there were a thousand fitness and nutrition podcasts on, on uh, in existence. But uh, there we go. And apparently, that's a, a decrease in position um, of 125 spots. I don't know. It seems like it's actually up. Like, yeah, I moved down into like a lower number, but a lower number is better. But it's color coded red, indicating that it's not a good thing. I don't know. Um, I am number 94. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, episode 127 was uh, uh, the 94th ranked episode under fitness and nutrition um, for all Apple podcasts in Saudi Arabia. Okay, there's that. And then apparently I am uh, number 110. Or no, I'm sorry. This was episode 125 where we we're talking about macro shifts. Um, that episode was number 110 um, in fitness and nutrition podcast episodes in the country of Oman. So to all my listeners in Saudi Arabia and Oman, thank you. Um, I never hear from any of you, but thank you. So uh, that's, uh, that's the life of a podcaster. And I, uh, I, I read a couple of articles um, this morning on podcasting. One of them was uh, the, the title of this uh, uh, article says, Stop the Interviews, Go Solo. Um, talking about how you know people tune in to listen to a host with personality. I'm like, they love me. They really love me. Uh, or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm ranked number six or seven hundred uh, instead of like you know four hundred. <laughs> maybe if I had more interviews and I had better interview technique, I don't know. Uh, but uh, saying that it, it, what what he says here is this is a guy who, who it was written by who is this Robert Crandall. Uh, and he comes at uh, podcasting with 30 years of radio experience, and he's still found doing a solo podcast to be very intimidating. So I think I'm a little bit of an outlier in that I find this to be completely and totally untim- unintimidating, uh, and the, that word never even crossed my mind. I don't like to go back and listen to these episodes, and I think that makes it a lot easier because I don't do a lot of editing, as we've talked about before, as I have talked about before. And so that makes it a lot easier for me to just do this in a very fearless way. I mean, I will typically, um, when I spit out the episode, when I render it from my uh, recording program here, I then have to go through a conversion process. And um, when I'm going through and clicking the buttons, the podcast will start playing. And I'll usually hear the first minute or two, and it's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I've gotten kind of used to it. So it doesn't really intimidate me all that much. But the whole process of doing it, like, this is way easier than having to deal with guests and schedules and come up with interview questions. I mean, when I have had guests on before, it's happened a few times, I feel like it's been worthwhile. I think it's been a good experience. It's also been a lot more work. So uh, this is way easier. I will take this any day of the week. And then there was another article I found um, that said, how many, this is the uh, the title of the article, how many of the 706,000 podcasts are still in production? Which I thought was interesting. Um, so um, that number, it's, it's, that's a number according to Blueberry, which is the, actually the service that I use to host this podcast. Um, so they, uh, uh, they, they are an authority for sure. So uh, what was it? Back in August of last year, the rate of new podcast titles, not episodes, but actual shows, um, is being added uh, about 2,000 per week. So now we, that is slowed to about 3,000 per month. So, so still 3,000 new podcasts per month. How many of those continue beyond a handful of episodes? <clears throat> I'm not really sure. 
Um, so, and they, they say it's one thing to start a podcast, quite another to develop and sustain engaging content time after time. So the uh, author of this article relies on uh, some uh, interview data with uh, Blueberry CEO Todd Cochran. And uh, Cochran says that uh, just under 280,000 of the 706,000 podcasts have produced a new episode in the one-year period from April 2018 to April 2019. So 39% of all podcasts out there are actually active if we define active as being producing at least one episode in a calendar year. Wow. Wow. So um, less than half of that, number 18% of podcasts, which is 126,000 out of the 706,000, 18% have added an episode in the last three months of that time period. So I guess that'd be from, what, uh, February, March, April 2019. Um, So only 18% of all podcasts were active in a three-month period. If by active, once again, we define that as being one episode during a three-month period. Wow. Um, So it's kind of crazy. It's really easy to start a podcast, and actually it's not not that easy. There's a lot of hoops hoops to jump through if you want it to be accessible, Um, and you have to put some work in on the back end if you want to make something as listenable as well. Um, But it's just interesting to see how how easy it is to stop a podcast. Kind of interesting. So what I want to start with here, um, start seven minutes into the show, now that I've gotten through that garbage, um, I uh, talked about this before as kind of a, a tease. Uh, before I went on vacation, and I said, there's an article out there, I want to dig into this a little bit, because I think it has, it's definitely a thought-provoking topic, Uh, it's not about bodybuilding, but it has clear, uh, a clear correlation and a clear connection, Um, and it could conceivably, I mean, nothing in bodybuilding will change or be affected as a result of this, but it's, it's something that's worth uh, consideration and discussion, and it's something that you can bring up with your friends as well, because I think it's, it's worth thinking about and contemplating at least. So this comes from the Washington Post. This is an article written by uh, Monica Hess, and I'll just read the first couple paragraphs here to give you a little dig in here. Um, It says, and once again, I will try and do this without inserting my own commentary here, so we'll just go with the the words of Ms. Hess and see if uh, I can can, uh, restrain myself. So, quote, For about a decade, a time that Olympic historians may someday classify as the Michael Phelps era, I've been reading about the unique genetic blessings bestowed upon the greatest swimmer to ever live. Phelps possesses a disproportionately vast wingspan, for example. Double-jointed ankles give his kick unusual range. In a quirk that borders on supernatural, Phelps apparently produces just half the lactic acid of a typical athlete. And since lactic acid causes fatigue, he's simply better equipped at a biological level to excel in his sport. I'm thinking of those stories because I'm thinking about the ways Michael Phelps was treated as a wondrous marvel. Nobody suggested he should be forced to have corrective surgery on his double-jointed ankles. Nobody decided he should take medication to boost his lactic acid levels, which brings us this week and to Castor Semenya. Parenthetical note, this article is from May 2nd. I'm a little late coming to the party here, so that explains the timing discrepancy here. Continuing. Semenya is an incredibly powerful runner from South Africa, a two-time Olympic champion. She has also been the subject of controversy since the beginning of her career a decade ago. Semenya is believed to have an intersex condition, though she doesn't speak publicly about it. Her body allegedly produces testosterone at a higher level than most women. On Wednesday, again back in May... The Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled that if Semenya wanted to continue to compete, she would be required to take medications to lower it, being her testosterone level. The Court of Arbitration for Sport, which was upholding a previous ruling by the International Association of Athletics Federations, admitted the decision was tantamount to discrimination, but a statement read, Discrimination is a necessary, reasonable, and proportionate means of achieving the IAAF's aim of preserving the integrity of female athletics. So, um, this is not a case of performance-enhancing drugs or anything like that. This is a case of somebody's body producing testosterone at a higher level than is commonly found in that gender. So, uh, and you can see like the, the, the court in South Africa here is certainly, um, I don't know. I I don't want to say certainly because clearly there's, there's room for debate in any, any conversation. 
it would be my opinion that they have really overstepped their bounds here. This seems this seems wholly inappropriate um, because, as they state with Phelps, as as Monica Hess states with Phelps, I mean, he similarly had genetic advantages that had nothing to do with his training. You know, large wingspan, double jointed ankles, um, reduced lactic acid production. All of those are things that, in and of themselves, they aren't necessarily going to be deal breakers. But when you put all of those in one body, it's suddenly like, wow, okay, there's a legit advantage here. Now, does that mean he's going to automatically win everything? No, and he didn't. He didn't win absolutely everything. Um, you know, there's still a lot of training involved, you know, and there's still, you know, you can have a bad race. So it's not an automatic win. There's still clearly a lot of effort and dedication and consistency that goes into it. So how does this relate to bodybuilding? Well, it's pretty clear. You know, you've got some people who are genetically predisposed to do well at bodybuilding and some that are not. And we, we, you see those people all the time. We're always thinking about it. We talk about it a lot. Somebody like, man, they're just really genetically gifted. And, you know, there's never been any conversation about disqualifying someone like that from, uh, uh, from, from a show. I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. The whole point is, you know, this is your chance to showcase, showcase your genetic gifts combined with the work that you've put in. Um, but clearly, you know, and as a coach, I see people all across the spectrum. I see people who will contact me looking for a coach and they will have, you know, they just clearly they have been dealt a really good genetic hand because they look amazing and they fully profess like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't follow any kind of a diet. I train like a dipshit. I don't really know what I'm doing. I, you know, I go to the gym a few times a week and I just tool around a little bit and it's like, okay, well, you suck because uh, I would love to look like you and I've been doing this for 20 years and I bust my ass to do it. So first of all, double-barreled middle fingers to you. And yes, sure, I can help. Yeah, absolutely, I can do that. So uh, there, there are people like that out there and then there are people who they just work and work and work and work and work and it's like it's hard to tell that they go to the gym just because they have been dealt a less advantageous genetic hand. Uh, it happens all the time. And I, I think about this a little bit deeper as well. And I think about, you know, what makes a, a, a champion bodybuilder? What makes a winner at, at the highest levels? And I think what it is, because there are all kinds of people out there who have been dealt these genetic hands. You know, you've got somebody who may have the most phenomenal bodybuilding genetics to ever grace the planet, and uh, they're an accountant who plays poker in their spare time and has never set foot inside the gym. So they never know. It's like I may have the most amazing uh, potential like with how my brain is programmed to learn how to play the flute. Well, I've never picked it up, so I'll never know. You know, A lot of what life is is trying different things and learning, you know, what you're good at, what comes naturally to you, what you, and in the case of something like athletics, what you're genetically predisposed to doing. Um, and th those I think are the people who succeed at the highest levels, the people who are genetically predisposed towards success. And then they happen to find that out and then they really attack it. And then beyond that, you've got to have somebody with a positive mindset, because if you have somebody who has all these genetic gifts towards bodybuilding and they discover that they're like, Oh, all right. But then, you know, they, they, their head is in the wrong spot or, you know, they, they have a lot of self doubt or, you know, Oh man, I like to drink and party a whole lot. Oh, this diet, you know, I'm not, I'm not genetically predisposed towards following this diet. That's for sure. You know, I mean, so what makes a champion is somebody where all of these things line up and they all happen. So this, uh, you know, the genetic predisposition, the discovery of that, um, having the right mindset, uh, being able to, to hit everything consistently with a great level of intensity. You know, I, I see people also, and, and oftentimes the, the people that I love to glom onto as far as like somebody that I will show up and like, see what I can do for a 12 week transformation for somebody. Here you go. I mean, any trainer that does that and puts those people up there and you're like, how is that possible in 12 weeks? It, it's a combination of, of two things. It's, it's having that genetic predisposition and this being the discovery phase of that. Like I haven't really trained at all, but man, I, I really want to, I want to see what I can do with my body. And it's like, pff, well, it turns out you were made for this. And then also 
there's still a lot of learning curve that has to happen there. And so it happens really, really quickly. Uh, like that learning curve, they go through that really, really quickly. And um, this isn't a genetic predisposition. This is just more of a, a brain learning skill. Um, how quickly does lifting make sense to you? You know, if you go in there and you, you've got all these genetic gifts, but you go in there and you don't really know how to manipulate the weights or, you know, you're not not a coordinated individual, you, you're going to see some results, but it's not going to be the same thing. So versus somebody who goes in and for whatever reason, they're shown how to do something or they sit down and do it and it just clicks. They're like doing a pull down like, man, I can really feel my lats. OK, boom. And then before you know it, three weeks later, they've tripled in size. Um, or they're doing a row or a deadlift and just mechanics are really good or, you know, they're, maybe they're, they're okay, but they learn how to do it really quickly. So, um, there's the genetic side of things. There's also the skill side of things and, and getting that learning curve, you know, how quickly are you able to tackle that? So, um, you know, that nobody on the, on the natural bodybuilding side of things is going to, uh, the, the worst thing that can happen that would be, um, similar to what's going on in this article is you'll have somebody and you're like, wow, there's no way that person's natural. They're going to get drug tested because in a lot of shows, it's not everybody who gets drug tested is just the class winners. Um, and so, uh, and sometimes it's just at random based on judge's discretion. And so you'll get somebody that could be singled out for drug testing, which if you are truly a national, a natural athlete and you get handpicked for drug testing, that is a badge of honor and you should wear that because <laughs> once again, it means that you are, genetically predisposed to look like you're not a natural athlete, which in bodybuilding in natural bodybuilding, that's a really good thing. If you don't look like you belong on a natural stage, but you're a hundred percent clean, that means you're winning. <laughs> that's a good thing. And the other thing, if we're going to talk about drugs as well is, you know, you get some people who just have a, a more powerful response to anabolics as well. So when you take somebody who is genetically predisposed towards just, you know, being able to, to build muscle and stay lean, you add in the mindset, the consistency, the work ethic, getting over that learning curve quickly and continuing to deepen that relationship with the movements and get better at it and develop those skills over time. And then you throw anabolics into the mix and this person just happens to respond really well to the, that's how you get a Phil Heath. That's how you get a Jay Cutler. That's how you get the people at the absolute top tier of bodybuilding. And the, the problem is with this being a sport is that so much of that is not in your control. It's how you were born. Um, you know, you, we want to think that we have a lot of control over it and uh, say, well, you know, it's my hard work, it's my consistency, it's my work ethic, it's all of that. That's why I'm a champion. And the problem is you can say that, and if you're somebody who does really well in, in, in competing, uh, then you can say that, but until you've walked a mile in the shoes of somebody who is not genetically gifted, you just don't know. And the problem is, in our life, we can only walk in one pair of shoes. Even I, as a coach, I can only walk in my own shoes. I can see a lot of other people walking in theirs. And so I think if you're working with a lot of people, you can get a, a better perspective on this. And that's really why I wanted to talk about this, is the perspective of it. Um, like, yeah, all you badasses that are that are doing national-level shows and going pro and winning pro shows, yes, I know you work hard. I know it's consistency. I also know that at that level, you're not doing well unless you have at least above-average genetics. Um, so, you know, you, you can kind of tell. Like, if somebody has below average genetics, I mean, just look at their, their photos, um, you know, from, from going back from, you know, early, early in their lifting day, if you can find something like that. And, you know, even you can see some crazy transformations that happen over the course of a few years. And first of all, you know, if this is happening over the course of a few years, I'm talking like two or three, and you're seeing like, you know, 30, 40 pounds of muscle getting added, it, it, it's genetics it's, and probably some gear as well. But, you know, that doesn't happen if you have average genetics. And so even if you're like, you look at somebody and you're like, I just don't really see the potential there. Well, it's because they haven't been doing anything. They haven't been training. They haven't been trying to build muscle. Um, but just because somebody doesn't have a lot of lean muscle on their body doesn't mean they don't have the genetics to pack it on quickly. So, um, and of course, you know, there, there'll probably be some negative feedback to, from this, which I would welcome. And I'd love to have the discussion about me discounting the effects of hard work. But I think I've been fairly clear, you know, that is another huge component. And if you have great genetic gifts and you suck ass in your work ethic and your consistency, 
you know, you can still do pretty well and just skate by on genetics. And I've worked with clients who have done that before. And then, you know, when that person really figures it out and puts it together, watch out because shit's going to (laughs) happen. And the problem is, you know, can they do that once or can they repeat that as well? So, um, I thought this this uh, this article on Castor Semenya was just a very interesting jumping off point for the rest of this discussion. So I just wanted to touch on that. It was on my uh, on my list of things that I wanted to go over here. Again, no real solutions, but I just like the idea of using that as a uh, a stepping stone for a conversation. So and if if you have thoughts on that and you want to call in, please do or just uh, you know uh, talk amongst yourselves, have conversations with your friends. Uh, it's an interesting topic, nonetheless. So um, uh, speaking of calling in eight six. 5182974 I still got some additional voicemails we want to go over here. Uh, I got a couple other questions. So let's uh, let's actually this is a really good carryover. This is a question that I've had um, in my uh, stack that I've been holding on to for a little while here and this comes from uh, two people, um, two clients of mine who have both recently competed Paul last weekend and Jessica a few weeks before that. So um, they're, they're asking basically, uh, the same thing I'll, I'll, I'll quote here, um, from Paul, first of all, what's a realistic amount of muscle to pack on in a year naturally, maybe a good topic for a podcast. There's a lot of BS out there in internet land on how much. And then Jessica says, uh, after her show, she was telling me I'd like to continue training after these shows and put on some serious muscle. How much do you think I can gain with my body type and height? So, and that, that is really the big question here. So I'm going to assume, um, for purposes of, as purposes of this discussion, that we're talking about a, a natural athlete, somebody not using anabolics. Um, so if you are, of course, that complicates things tremendously and changes the answer uh, in a big way as well, because then it's like, okay, well, is this going to be a first cycle? Have you done this before, et cetera? What are we doing? Blah, blah, blah. There's a lot to go in, and that becomes something that's far more difficult to predict, um, especially if it's a first cycle. So um, we'll, we'll assume a natural athlete here. So, um, and of course the, I, I will just preface this by saying this question is impossible to answer, but it, it, it's a good dovetail with what we were just talking about because this is all about genetic potential. Um, so part of it is capitalizing on your post-show rebound. So, you know, you have been, um, you've been prepping for a while as a natural athlete. You, you go through, you do this show during your prep. We always try to minimize muscle loss. There's always going to be some. So one of the first things that happens post show, this is always assuming as well that you are really hitting it hard coming out of the show. Like maybe you take a couple days off, but you're not totally slacking off on the diet. You're not like, eh, you know, I'll lift a couple times a week, but you know, I'm, I'm busy. I've been putting stuff off. So I'm going to prioritize other things. Like, no, we're coming out of the show and we're hitting things hard. So, uh, what, uh, what, what is realistic to expect? Well, first of all, whatever muscle you lost during prep, it's reasonable to expect that you will be able to gain that back relatively easily once you get your calories up, once you stop doing an, just an absolute ass load of cardio. So, uh, but you've got to bring the intensity on the lifts, you know, with that calorie bump. Uh, I, I always encourage people to, you know, lift as though, um, your, your calories have been doubled rather than just brought up a little bit. Like if you can get your, your brain in that mindset to just expect that it can perform more, um, that's going to mean that we'll be able to bring your calories up further sooner which is going to be helpful. The closer we can get you up towards maintenance levels, the better. Um, so how, how much is reasonable to pack on in a year? Uh, like I said, impossible to answer, but I would say, and of course, you know, this is going to depend tremendously on, you know, gender and height being the, the main factors there. Like, you know, a, a guy that's six foot four is going to be able to put on more than a, a woman who's five foot one. Also, how long have you been training? That's another thing to consider. Like if you, uh, if you're like, yeah, I've, I've gone to the gym for a couple years, but it's really been kind of casual, but I want to do a show and it's in 14 weeks. <laughs> okay, cool. You're probably not going to have a whole lot of muscle on your frame, but let's go to it. And then coming out of that prep, you know, you, you really haven't been training for too long. You probably put on some muscle during that prep, even at a deficit. Um, so coming out of that, your capacity for growth is going to be a lot higher than somebody who has been, you know, let's say you've been doing this for a long time. You've done two shows a year for the past four years. And then you're coming out of that and you're like, okay, growth season this year. How much can I put on less than the person in case a, that, that's the only thing I'm really comfortable saying for sure. You know, the, the more you go through this, the more difficult it becomes. I always tell people during a cut, 
uh, each pound that you lose makes the next pound a little bit harder. You're going to have to work a little bit harder, which is why typically prep will accelerate in intensity towards the finish line. You know, your calories will come down, your cardio will go up the closer and closer and closer to showtime you get. Similarly, with every pound of muscle that you gain, the next one becomes harder to gain. And the uh, that's probably close to an exponential curve on that. It's, it's certainly not linear. Um, although if it was linear, that would still be incredibly difficult, which means... Let's say from your untrained state, you've managed to put on 20 pounds of muscle over the course of your lifting career. Great. The next pound is going to be really, really hard. You're going to have to work harder for that pound than you probably did for the previous 20. And then once you've put on pound number 21, putting on number 22, it's the same kind of thing. You're probably going to have to work harder for pound number 22 than you did for the first 21. So um, it, it very very nebulous concepts here, but the idea being, you know, there's a lot of variables that go into trying to answer that question and all those variables make it impossible. Um, but your height, uh, your gender, your experience level, we will assume for a moment that consistency and training intensity are pretty constant. Um, like this is assuming that you're training with a high level of intensity and you're doing it consistently. I would also always argue that if you think you're training at a high level of consistency, uh, you are probably selling yourself short a little bit. If you say, like, oh, I train hard, I'm like, maybe. But as soon as somebody says that, my, my, next, an my next response is always, prove it show me. And oftentimes it is not proven sufficiently to my satisfaction. Like you think that's training hard? You're training, you're working. You and and this will work for right now, but once you pack on another 5 pounds, this is going to be insufficient. What you're doing here is not hard enough. You know, the 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 earlier gains are always easier. And the the problem is that a lot of people will fall into habits where they they fall into a groove and who who is guilty of this more than anybody else? I am raising my hand right here. So what what built your first 20 or 30 pounds of muscle that you've put on will not be sufficient to put on the next five. Uh, your, your training style, your training intensity, your expectations for your own level of performance are going to have to adjust and scale. Otherwise, you will plateau. So, And you'll plateau hard, and you'll be like, what the fuck is going on? Why am I not growing? Well, it's because what you've done before is insufficient for what we need to do now. So... Uh, another thing that I would leave you with on that is uh, a quote from uh, a former colleague of mine that I worked with, uh, Aaron Orton, back in Oregon, who is a great natural bodybuilder. He's actually promoting a show now. He owns a facility in downtown Eugene, super cool guy. Um, and he, he once said, uh, in bodybuilding, you measure fat loss in pounds, you measure muscle gain in ounces. And I would append that to say if you've been at this for a while, like 10 years or so, it's probably more realistic to measure muscle gain in grams than ounces. So um, it comes on slow. And if you can pack on a little bit here and there, that's a huge deal. If you can put on, you know, a few pounds a year, that is a big, big deal and not to be taken lightly. So Anyway, I just wanted to address that. It's been on my list for a while. So um, let's do this. Um, I might take a short little break here. Eh, maybe not. I'm gonna, we're going to jump into some uh, some questions here. We still have some voicemails for people. So once again, um, I don't know what is necessarily on these, but we're going to start at least and uh, you know, hope for the best and see what happens here. Hey, Darren. It's Emily Buffbear from your home state of Oregon. Uh, just wanting to know if you have any thoughts on the new movie coming out. I think it's called... Game Changers, um, and it's about athletes who are going vegan. I have my own thoughts about it. As you know, uh, Arnold hasn't come out as officially a vegan yet, even though uh, I think it's all over Instagram that people are claiming that he's vegan. In 2017, he posted a video saying that he's trying to eat less meat. He has these goals of um, bringing up awareness around climate change and things like that. And so, uh, I personally am a little offended by uh, this uh, uh, this movie coming out because a lot of the athletes, um, to get where they were at, um, ate a lot of animal protein. And so to encourage people to quit it completely based on their stories, I don't know. I'm going to watch, though, because I am curious. Uh, but I want to know your thoughts. Thank you. Very good question, Emily. I was not aware of that um, until you brought it up. So... Um, yeah, game changer. So I, I watched the trailer for it 
And I'm watching it with a fairly critical eye because I'm always a little skeptical of, you know, I, I have nothing against vegetarians or vegans whatsoever. I have some great clients who are vegetarians or vegans. So uh, I, I certainly have no qualms with uh, their decision, with that lifestyle, anything like that at all. Uh, one thing I would always say is as a bodybuilder, if you're going vegan or vegetarian, you're making something that is hard, harder. By doing that, you're increasing the degree of difficulty. And some people might say, that's fine. I'm okay with that. Cool. Just want to make you aware of that. Um, but you watch that, that trailer and I, I'm, I'm kind of triggered by a few things in there. Just the, the quotes and the anecdotes that they offer from people who show up on camera to, to share their story and their testimonial. I'm like, yeah, I, that that carries zero weight with me. That has no impact on anything at all. There's a guy who's like, yeah, I went vegan and man, my blood pressure suddenly just went down. I'm like, okay, what were you doing before? You know, I mean, could you have corrected that with some other type of diet? What about people whose blood pressure is fine already like me? You know, am I going to benefit from going vegan or whatever? I don't know. Um, so I, I will reserve a lot of my judgment on that. Um, and funny story. I probably will not see it. Um, and it has nothing to do with the fact that I, 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 I don't care for the message in there or, you know, it, it really, it, it really comes across as kind of a propaganda film. And I imagine one of the big, uh, uh, big, uh, forces behind that is probably supplementation industry. If I had to guess, because <laughs> you might say, you know, you know, yeah, this movie is what it's funded by big plant. I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, the agriculture business is big, um, but uh, I, I think it probably has more to do with supplements. I'm just guessing. I have no idea at all. Um, I probably won't see it for the same reason I haven't seen any of the Generation Iron movies or anything like that. When I go to sit down and watch a movie, I, I want escapism and to relax, and if I'm doing that, I'm still working. <laughs> so that's what it comes down to more than anything else. So, uh, yeah, and the other thing, and Emily raises a good point, is, you know, uh, using animal products is an easier way to, to build your physique. And when you, when you put it like that, it sounds kind of crass, but you know, let's just call it what it is. I mean, I don't think we need to run away from the fact and the reality that we are, you know, killing animals for food. I mean, we are raising them for that, for that purpose as well. So, and I think having a conversation about, the, the climate impacts of that, like that has been discussed in, in movies and in articles and in books before. Uh, and it, it seems like that might be some of the motivation behind uh, some of this. I don't know. But um, if you want to make that argument, fine. If you want to say, well, this is just healthier, you perform better this way. I, I would say yeah, I, I don't buy that. Um, I have worked with a lot of clients who are vegetarians who at some point, not through my arm twisting, because I won't, I won't, try to change somebody's lifestyle necessarily. Well, that's not true. That's kind of what I do. But, you know, a decision like that is not up for me to change. If somebody says I'm vegetarian, great. The case is closed on that and that's all there is to it. Um, but I, I've, I've worked with enough clients that I've worked with some who are vegetarians who stopped being vegetarian and returned to eating meat. And suddenly, you know, I could, I could fill a documentary trailer with all kinds of testimonials from them saying, man, as soon as I started, as soon as I returned to eating meat, I felt so much better. I had so much more energy, uh, you know, all these kind of things as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I see your anecdotal uh, evidence, and I, I can raise you a similar amount going the other direction. I don't necessarily think that's a reasonable conversation to have, and it's not necessarily helpful. But um, I, I do think, Emily, what you say about, you know, uh, I don't know if I'd say offended, but kind of hypocritical. Like, yeah, so you used animal products to build where you are now, like, you know, Arnold, you know, we all know Arnold. And so now he's going vegan and he's saying everybody else should do this as well. Like, well, well yeah, it's a little late for that, buddy. I mean, you know, I, I, I appreciate the sentiment, but yeah, there, there is, um, th there's a little bit of hypocrisy there. And so that, that kind of is like, mm, that rubs me the wrong way a little bit. But anyway, I, I don't know when that movie comes out. Um, hold on, a quick Google search. I might be able to tell you. Not that I'm really here to promote that movie or anything like that. But uh, presented by James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lewis Hamilton, Jackie Chan. An award-winning documentary. Oh, it, <laughs> it's not coming out. It was released January 19th of last year. So... Whew. Yeah, okay, so it's been out for a while, apparently. You can watch that. Uh, where can you watch that? Um, 
I don't know. I'll leave it to you to figure that out. <laughs> I'm not going to do all the work for you. So uh, anyway, that, that was a good one, Emily. I appreciate that. So um, what else do we have? Let's see who else is in the queue here. Hi, Darren. It's Monica from New York. Um, I just wanted to get your point of view. Um, I have this friend at the gym that I met, and she is in prep. She has a show on Saturday. Um, so her throat chats are doing a few things, which I find kind of weird, and I'm not sure if it's normal or what your thoughts on it, so I just wanted to see what your input was. Um, she's been in prep, but about two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, she was drinking alcohol. So I, I assume that you don't drink alcohol while you're on prep. Second thing is her show's on Saturday. So all week she's just been doing cardio. Um, today is Friday. She's not doing anything today. And she said her t- coach had told her to drink a glass of wine before the show to have her veins pop. Does that is that normal? If so, why would you do that? Um, just your thoughts on just coaching advice she's been given. All right, thanks. Bye. Hey, Monica, good question. So, yeah, peak week is uh, kind of a weird little beast, and uh, you'll see people do all kinds of weird shit on peak week. Uh, you know, w- one of the things that uh, was uh, often told by people, uh, by, by coaches to clients is, you know, for the last couple of weeks, uh, especially like going into peak week, what you need to do, this is not a joke, by the way, I'm not making this up, I promise. And, and some of you have probably heard this before. Um, take preparation H and rub it all over your midsection and then wrap yourself in saran wrap. Now, does that sound like the start of a Saturday Night Live skit to you? It does to me, um, but that was legit advice um, because back in the day, um, that uh, uh, preparation H would actually um, had an ingredient in it that would actually pull uh, pull fluids uh, to the uh, to the surface of your skin. Now that probably sounds less weird now than it did five years ago because now we've got people using sweat belts and they're rubbing like vasoburn on themselves so that they can sweat more. Same kind of concept. Um, but preparation H and Saran wrap was the ghetto way to do it. So it's kind of funny. You know, I, I, I tell this story and I'm like, check this shit out. And you're all like, well, that sounds exactly like what I do or what, what so-and-so does. So it, it's kind of funny. It's really commonplace now. But the thing is, people continue to do that for years after uh, the makers of preparation H removed the active ingredient that actually caused that fluid pull to happen. So just force of habit, they're still doing it. It does nothing. Is that going to stop anybody? Nope. And they'll be like, oh man, this really works. God, look at this. Like, it's not doing anything. You are completely inventing that in your head. It's kind of funny. So all that to say, people do weird, dumb shit on peak week all the time. Uh, so what you're talking about, so like two to three weeks before the show, she's drinking alcohol. That is because she sucks at prep. Um, uh, it's just dumb. Um, that is on her. I would be shocked if her coach told her to do that. Um, that is on her. So that is because, uh, she's having a bad prep. <laughs> That's all there is to it. And, uh, she needed to medicate apparently, uh, or just was not taking it seriously. I don't know. Um, doing, doing just cardio all during peak week. That doesn't make any sense. That's dumb. Um, that's a great way to show up, uh, flat and stringy. And uh, I mean, if you're, if you're behind on your prep, okay, I get that. But cutting out lifting during peak week is is not a smart move. Uh, it's not going to improve your aesthetic. And if your thing is, well, we need to, you know, we, we, don't have time to lift just because we need to do more cardio. You don't need to do that much cardio. You know what you need? You need another couple weeks. So if you're that worried about it, you should pick a different show and not do this one. If you have to make drastic changes like that to your peak week, you've, you've screwed the pooch, basically. Um, nothing on Friday. It is very common to take a rest day on Friday. Just take that day, travel, get rested up, get ready for the show, give your legs a break, don't do any cardio. That, kind of, that is very normal. That's very typical advice. I support that. Um, drinking wine before the show, help making the veins pop a little bit. If you're lean enough for that to do anything. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a legit thing. It really is. Um, wine, uh, any other kind of alcohol, all alcohol will do the same thing. Um, wine, I, I don't know why that's, I guess it's more accessible, but you could do a shot of uh, whiskey or bourbon, do pretty much the same thing. My concern there is, you know, the 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 case against doing something like that because it it really will make things pop a little bit it absolutely will um the the case against um let, let's take a bikini competitor for example uh in bikini you know if, if you are lean enough for that to really make a difference you might be bordering on too lean for bikini maybe maybe not 
Um, it just depends on what level you're competing at, what show it is, what the judges are looking for. But you might be borderline because in order for that to really make a difference, you got to be pretty darn lean, um, sub 10%. And so uh, that might be bordering on too lean. I don't know. Depends on how it looks on your body more than anything else. So the other main concern there is you've been prepping for, let's say, 16 weeks. You've been at a caloric deficit. You're pounding water all through prep. And now eventually, by the time Friday show day rolls around on Saturday, you're not taking in much of any water. You haven't had any alcohol in probably 16 weeks at all if you're doing it right and not like this woman was. Um, so you have a glass of wine, a shot of something. How hard do you think that's going to hit you? Now think, you're in five-inch heels and you've got to walk across a stage with nerves going at the same time. Does that sound like a good idea? And I ask that as a serious question because some people can handle it really well. And other people, they know their limitations. They're like, oh, no, that's going to be a bad time. I'm barely comfortable in these heels as it is. If you throw some alcohol into the mix, especially considering how quickly and how hard that has the potential to hit you, you might have a recipe on your hands for a, a, a bad show. <laughs> Because falling down, and then uh, I tell you what, try this. As a, a, this is actually be a good practice for anybody um, looking to do a show in a division where you've got to wear heels. Um, get down on your hands and knees with your shoes on, and then get yourself back up. How easy is that? Can you do it looking gracefully? Because just imagine you fall down on stage. You know, you you can fall or you can take a little stumble and you can recover, but. I'm just thinking like in heels, I've never put on five inch heels. I struggle getting up from the ground barefoot. You put five inch heels on me. I'm really going to have to think about where, okay, this foot goes here. Now I got to lean forward a little bit here. I got to shift my weight here. This hand goes here and then I can push up. I mean, it's like a choreography, I would think to get back up from that. So practice that. Think about how graceful you look and then think about, okay, do you want to go through that on stage potentially? Um, and just think about how likely it might be if you, for you to have, uh, some kind of a, a a tipsy accident on stage. That's really the biggest concern, but the, there is a real benefit to be achieved from that. That, that is legit. It is. Um, but two to three weeks out. No, if you're doing that, it's just because you're, you're lazy or, uh, you're just not tackling your prep well at all. Let's do another one. Shall we? Hey Darren, Gabriella from New Jersey. Hope you had a good vacation. Um, question of the week is, do you have any tips for taking progress pictures? Because I, feel like I'm the leanest I ever have been and I feel like I look great and then I go and take my pictures and I'm like Jesus I look huge and I think I have pretty good lighting but I really just can't I've tried a couple of different places in my house and I just really can't figure it out so if anyone or you have any tips for taking <clears throat> more realistic pro progress pictures of yourself let me know thanks Thank you, Gabrielle. The uh, the sad coda to that message. Um, we were uh, working on prep towards a show, and then uh, Gabrielle had a little boo boo with her ACL, so prep is off, and I'm kind of bummed about that. Uh, probably uh, less bummed than she is because things were going really well. We we're happy with that, but uh, anyway, um, little recovery. We'll get back to it. So, uh, progress pick advice. Oh boy, do I have progress pick advice? The first one is to adjust your expectations a little bit. Um, until you are like uh, at a level of leanness to where people are going to be worried about you and asking if you're okay, your progress picks, you're always going to look heavier in your picks than you are, unless you find some lighting that is uh, a little too flattering, in which case those aren't really good. Like if you're 15% body fat and you find some lighting that makes you look more like 11, as your coach, that doesn't help me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to see you as you are. So what I would say to you, Gabriella, like with your progress picks, where you were, that was great. The light in there was good. I feel like I can see you as you are in photos. Now, the thing is, when you are just taking a still frame capture of yourself, a photograph, you lose all the subtlety and the shading um, that your eyes pick up when an object is in motion. So uh, if you record, uh, if you shoot a couple of photos in, in a spot like where you were, and then you record video as you had done also, you can see like, man, that video, I look leaner in the video. It's because as you move, the shadows move across your body a little bit. They show a little bit more detail. What they're showing is an accurate representation of the detail and contours in your body. And without movement in a still frame, that's lost. Your eye doesn't pick that up. So when they say the camera adds 10 pounds, there you go. They're talking specifically about a photograph, not necessarily a video camera. And that, that is why. 
guy. So um, take that into consideration and just understand that your, your progress picks will probably always look like they are um, a little behind the curve. The, the photos are always going to look like they're just a little bit slower than what you see in, in normal life. And so once you lean out and you start to really see some definition and some separation and some vascularity, well, guess what? you've got a body now that just has more natural contour to it. Uh, I mean, the, the contours and the edges can be a little bit more sharp. The divots a little bit more pronounced. Those are all places where shadows can creep in. And then the, the, the more uh, areas like that you have on your body, like deeper separation, deeper cuts, um, you know, vascularity creates contour as well. So that all shows up a lot more dramatically in photos as well. So there comes to be a point where, you know, you get lean enough and then suddenly the photos catch up and they start looking like a more accurate representation of where your body and where your physique actually is. So that is why. So uh, I think the, the first part of taking good progress picks is just adjusting your expectations for you. Now, for other people, I would also say the first part of taking good progress picks is stop taking them in your fucking basement without any lights turned on because these photos are absolutely terrible. They're dog shit. Um, I have that conversation with clients a lot. I don't necessarily always put it just like that. But since I'm not talking to anybody specifically right now, but just generally, um, man, you generally, the population of this planet cannot take a photo to save your life. And and it's embarrassing. So uh, <laughs> some of you really got it. You got it nailed down. And I know it, it is more difficult for some people because there are a lot of people that just, they, they struggle to really find a place. Like they just don't have good lighting in their house. In which case I say, you need to go outside. Well, I take my photos before the sun comes up. We'll take them on a weekend when the sun is out. Um, it, well, my, my neighbors can see me. Well, your neighbors are going to think that you're weird. Guess what? They probably already do. So don't worry about that. Just give them, give them something to talk about. Give them a real reason to think that you're weird. Let, make it so that they don't think you're weird. They know you're weird. And then guess what? They'll stay away from you and they'll stop bogging, bugging you so much and coming and knocking on your door when you're trying to sit down and eat dinner. So, you know, there's, there's some value in scaring people away. Trust me. It's like the introverts motto right there. So, um, but definitely experiment with some different slash better locations to uh, to take photos. Play around with lighting. And here's the big thing, and I've, I've struggled with this with a few clients recently as well. Take your photos and then just look at them. Do they look useful? Great. Send them. Does it look kind of like you? Great. Does it look like it's a silhouette and it's really dark and you can't really see anything? Guess what? That is worthless to me. So um, experiment. And... I have a uh, I have a YouTube video on this. I have a blog post on this as well. Where um, I have a, actually have a couple YouTube videos on this where uh, I, I get really deep into the weeds. And you can um, what what you'll notice is that if you've got a light overhead, what you can do is experiment with where you place the camera relative to that light, and then where you stand relative to that light. Like if you stand directly underneath it, guess what? It's going to shine directly on the top of your head. And then your head is going to block that light from hitting the rest of you. So that suddenly your dome is like acting as a, uh, a, a, it's generating shadows and that's it. So instead, what happens if you step like, instead of being directly under it, you step like a foot and a half back. So it's actually, it's above you, but it's in front of you a little bit. Well, guess what? Now it's casting light on your body. But what if you take a, instead of being directly under it, you take a, a step and a half in front. Well, guess what? Now you're backlit, so you're going to be more like a silhouette at that point, which is not useful. So um, what I would really, really encourage is just to take some time and experiment. Set up your tripod, put your phone in it, have it on the selfie camera, which is not the best one to use, but I, I get it. We want to see ourselves um, when we're taking it to make sure we're in frame. Uh, and just Walk around a little bit. See where your lights are. Stand under it. Move around a little. A, a foot in this direction. A foot in that direction. Over here. What if, okay, I'm going to stand here, but what if I move the camera a foot closer to me? You know, you don't need a lot of space to take progress pics. I see all kinds of progress pics that are from the waist up, and somebody says, I didn't have room to get my legs. Bullshit. You only need like four feet of room uh, between you and the camera to be able to see your legs. Just, you know, keep in mind, I don't need to see 10 feet over your head. Um, I'd like to see everything from your feet up to your neck. Chop off your head if you like. I don't care. Most people don't want to take a picture of their face anyway. That's how I do mine. So um, th there's there's no reason why your progress picks have to be terrible. Now, if they can't be excellent, they can at least be okay. They can be sufficient, and that'll be good. So um, 
Okay, I think that's enough for today. Um, hey, bonus surprise. I forgot to mention this. I am recording this on Thursday, July 4th, and I will be publishing this on Friday, July 5th. So, happy 4th of July. Why am I doing it today? Well, you know what? I like recording my podcast in an empty house, and uh, my wife was going to the zoo with a friend this morning, so I'm like, hey, here's my chance. I'm going to do it. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a wild day over here. This is how I'm spending my fourth. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, my, my main goal for the fourth is to keep Taz from losing his shit with the fireworks. So um, we had him going last night. It was kind of funny last night. We had fireworks, and we had a thunderstorm rolling through at the same time. So... It's like the run, the rumble of, of thunder, and there were some pretty good claps. There was a lot of lightning last night, and then the fireworks would follow up. And I'm like, really, people? Come on. Let let nature have its own fireworks show for a little bit. You just chill out. It's the third. You just wait until the fourth. Come on. Um, it wasn't too bad. It'll be bad tonight, though, and so we'll uh, we'll be in with Taz. We'll we'll crank up a movie or something and you know try to do what we can to keep him happy. He he really doesn't get too upset about it. Um, I get more annoyed by it than he gets scared by it, I think. Um, I just hate loud noises of any kind, even if I know they're coming. Uh, not a fan. Not a fan. So anyway, there you go. That is the drop set for, um, we will call it Friday, July 5th, even though it is not that date. So I appreciate you listening. Thank you. We'll be back on Monday, which is going to be the... 8th of July. Yeah. Yeah. We should be on track for that. So, um, phone lines are still open. 865-518-2974. If you missed it, yes, the ask Dina segment will be live as soon as I get some fodder for it. So if you have questions you want to ask her, somebody who knows everything about me and nothing about bodybuilding, this could make for some entertaining conversation. I'd love to hear your questions. Maybe until I hear them and then I may be doing a regret. So uh, we'll see. Either way, whatever comes through, I'm going to pose to her and then we'll just let her go to town with it and see what happens. So I uh, hope everybody has a fantastic um, holiday today, even though this will be a day late by the time you hear it. Everybody in the States, happy birthday to our country. Uh, and uh, I hope everybody has a great weekend. We'll be back here on Monday.